so much, Tristan. And um, I just want to uh, express a number of thank yous and acknowledgments. And uh, thank you for the kind introduction. But I also want to thank Tristan and all of the organizi organizing team for this opportunity. Um, I think this is a fantastic opening of a conversation that we have not seen uh, happen on this campus yet. And so I think that is tremendously exciting. And I've been very honored and happy to play even a very tiny role in bringing all of this to fruition. So I want to thank you for bringing it forward. And I want to thank the authors of the papers. It was a pure pleasure to read these and to really delve into the issues that they are bringing forward. And so I want to thank you for all of your work and your presentations today. And as Tristan mentioned, one of my area of academic expertise is as a student of global indigenous politics. So I look at indigeneity on the international and the global level, but I also like to look in terms of regional distinctiveness and, and, and look for intersections and points of distinction. So this topic is particularly of interest to me in my academic work. And one of the truths that I've discovered in this work is that there are, of course, decades-long debates over this concept of indigeneity. <laughs> and it has been particularly complex and contested across the vast landmass of Africa and Asia. And in all of these conversations over decades, a dichotomy has emerged and been constructed which um, I think is somewhat of a false dichotomy, but it's taken on a, a very real life of its own. And that dichotomy has been between what we consider uh, settler colonial states. Uh, typically, these are called Canada, US, Australia, New Zealand, sometimes South Africa, sometimes even the Arctic of Scandinavia. And that's one neat, clean category that we have. And then we have considered in the second category to be the problematics of, of definition where indigeneity is concerned. These are African Asian states typically, often colonial states that have transitioned to a post-colonial condition. And it is these states where the most problematic constructions of this global concept we've called indigeneity. Um, and there have been many issues uh, of, about undermining the global solidarity of indigeneity by opening up these questions. And as a side note, I just have to, to mention that the term indigenous itself, uh, often with a capital I, developed out of the late 1970s indigenous rights movement on the global level. Uh, we didn't see it before then, and it has come to have real meaning. And, and the term was intended to recognize diversity and singularity within a political usage uh, uh, and creating a political mission that was common and also a solidarity. So there's been this contestability between does the term apply actually to, to areas across Asia and Africa. And one of the huge victories of the indigenous rights movement across from the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and even into the 2000s was the maintenance of the core element of self-identification as a key component of indigenous identity. And the UN has been dealing with this term for many, many years and uh, trying to contend with the possibility that self-identity could be a major component of indigenous construction. 
And their solution was as a result of uh, the Martinez-Cobo report, a massive report that came out in 1982. Uh, one of the pieces of that report was a working definition of indigenous peoples that the UN began to use at that point and continues to use in its various agencies. And the three components of that working definition have been first, a pre-colonial presence of that people prior to the arrival of another group. Secondly, that the group has maintained a distinctive culture, language, presence throughout a colonial experience. And in practice, these two are usually considered in opposition or dichotomous. So when we look at Western Hemisphere, it's very clear that there were previous populations, an arriving colonizer, and so on. When we look to areas of Southern Africa, Asia, the distinctiveness of populations versus the rest of, of the society are very clear. And so these two are often seen in opposition. And then the third element is self-identification as indigenous. And this is intended to be the unifying factor of what these other two dichotomies seem to give us. But in this working definition, of course, it's left open the possibility that um, states, societies, especially across Africa and Asia, would struggle with the definition in terms of its application to themselves. What I've come to learn in these beautiful set of papers is that I knew history and experience provide an important challenge to that dichotomy. And I think we need to really take that in. In other words, I think I knew is a notable exception from the otherwise uh, clear trends across Africa and Asia. So if we take a look at some of the key fundamentals from the papers, the colonial project on Hokkaido with Ainu seems to problematize this construction in some key ways. So first of all, we have a set of assumptions that are settler colonial. Uh, the idea that Japanese are racially and ethnically superior and homogenous. One of the papers noted Japanese means no minority blood. And so a pureness, and other the other category is a foreigner. We see this at play in other settler colonial societies. I also see an assumption that Ainu somehow have a primordial nature and a primitiveness, which must be maintained in order to maintain the claim to be Ainu. In other words, Ainu cannot exist with modernity and cannot become Japanese. And yet, as one paper notes, the name Hokkaido itself means northern land belonging to indigenous peoples. So we have this conflicting set of assumptions. Secondly, we have Terra Nullius, where a group of people moved in and expanded, partially due, and we see this in our, in our North American context, to national and international power politics. In this case, the competition between Japan and the Russian Empire in the 19th century, and the need for Japan to access resources to meet this competition head on. And so the material element of international power and imperial politics is in play in the Ainu case just as much as in North America. Thirdly, we see patterns of discrimination, marginalization, exploitation, expropriation. Also similar to the North American experience, the colonizers in Hokkaido initially formed relationships which were characterized by partnership, by trade but quickly transformed to 
very unequal practices that, that transform those relations into conditions of economic dependency and subservience. Fourth, labor and societal relations were completely transformed along gender lines from a state of complementarity to one of imposed hierarchy. That's a shared experience with us. Fifth, a civilizing mission, social Darwinism, the idea that indigenous cultures are doomed to die out, and therefore a program of cultural assimilation to help them, to prepare them, protect them from this inevitability. Sixth, we see the advent of farming, settlers, private property. And I was actually shocked to learn about the advisors from the United States <laughs> who brought in their experience with tribal removals and, and all of this project. Fascinating. Um, seventh, Social and economic relations were entirely changed as a result of the shift in relations with the outsiders. And yet, in a particular irony, those who best preserve the culture and the language are the most marginalized, or what we might even call the double subaltern in society. We see that here as well. The ones who did not go to residential school in Canada were the ones without status. <laughs> the double subaltern. It's an irony we don't often think about, but it's very clear in this case as well. And so with this set of seven elements running through these papers and intersecting through these papers, convinces me completely that the settler colonial model, rather than the typical Africa-Asia model, better captures the history and the experience of Ainu, and maybe a much more appropriate application. But what's been even more disconcerting is how that has occurred in the Ainu case, different from the North American or Australian New Zealand case, because it's occurred without mass immigration. It's occurred without multiculturalism. And that is a distinctiveness from what we have seen in other settler colonial theaters like Canada, US, Australia, New Zealand. And so this particular grouping of papers expands our understanding in a key way on settler colonialism, geographically and substantively. And it forces us to contend with questions about the connection of settler colonialism to the immigration project, to multiculturalism, something that with the North American eye we've taken for granted, and what we typically think of as settler colonialism. Another taken for granted assumption in our understandings of settler colonialism and settler colonial theory that are familiar to us is the role of the Christian religion and the Christian church in making law, enforcing law, creating legal doctrines, including shifts in gender roles, family relations, and other aspects like residential schooling. We understand this to be a fundamental truth in our settler colonial experiences, and Christianity played a role in Anglo and French settler colonialism in a very powerful way. Yet in the Japanese context, the Ainu context, I don't see any evidence of Christianity to be a player at all. And yet all these patterns persist. And so the story seems remarkably similar even in the absence of the Christian religion. I think that forces us to think through some of our questions and assumptions. And so that's where I would like to end my formal comments, and I do have some questions for the panel <laughs> that we can take. Mm -hmm. <laughs>
Hokkaido 150 was hosted by Tristan Grunel and Fuyubi Nakamura on March 14th and 15th, 2019 at the University of British Columbia, located on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded lands of the Musqueam First Nation. For more videos and information about Hokkaido 150, visit meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca slash Hokkaido 150. All music copyright Chikar Studios 2016 and used courtesy of the Okidub Ainu Band. Thank you for listening.